This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Tuesday's episode. This is a good one. And we love talking about things that nobody else talks about in the mom room. And that is why today I am speaking with Rachel Olivier. Rachel is a registered nurse. She is a PhD and a soon-to-be nurse practitioner, and her expertise is in sexual health after giving birth. And we're not just talking about the six-week checkup, which is literally only focused on the physical aspects of being intimate or sexual health. It's also just taking note of what the recovery is looking like. Her research was also focused on the emotional, relational, and social aspects of the six-week checkup and also just postpartum in general and returning to sex and being intimate. In this episode, we talk about all kinds of things, including breastfeeding and sexual health. Did you know that breastfeeding leads to vaginal dryness? I did not know that. She gives a lot of insight on what her participants in her PhD research what they felt in postpartum and when they felt the most stressed or when they actually started thinking about being intimate or returning to sex in postpartum. She tells us what the six-week checkup is actually for and that we shouldn't feel pressured to return to sex at six weeks because a lot of us are not ready. I think we waited till 11 weeks, which that might be early for some people, might be late. We're all different. So without further ado, please welcome Dr. Rachel Olivier to the mom room. For people listening, this is my first episode with these new, very professional looking headphones. It's very different from like I used to just wear the earbuds, but every podcaster that I see wears like these headphones. It's very different. Like I feel like there's someone squeezing my head. Like, I don't know. It's just weird. But Anyways, moving on. I always, every time someone comes on the podcast, like there's some kind of technical issue. Like it's never just smooth sailing. But Rachel. New challenge. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for having me, Renee. So right now you're in BC? I am, yes. Okay, yes. cool. Whereabouts? I'm uh, doing a local contract right now in Penticton, BC. I'm here just for a few more days. Oh, okay. And then I'll be home for the holidays and starting my new job in Vancouver in the new year. Nice. And where is home? Home for me is Calgary and Canmore. Oh, okay. Nice, nice. And have you spent lots of time in Vancouver? I've visited friends multiple times, but never lived there. So this will be the first time. Nice. But yes, I've visited yeah, quite a few times over the years. So looking forward to... Yeah, a new city, another new city. <laughs> so my husband is from Vancouver. Like he was born in South Africa, but he's been in Vancouver for like since elementary school. So his parents are there. So we go there often. My brother also lives there. It is the best. Like I'm very excited for you because Vancouver is so beautiful. Like, ah, oh, it's lovely. Can I ask what your position will be there? So I'll be there at BC Women's Hospital as a nurse practitioner full-time in the Women's Heart Health Clinic and in Complex Gynecology. And I'll also have about 10% protected time there for research with the Women's Health Research Institute, as well as my position as an adjunct professor at UBC. That's amazing. Congrats. That's exciting. So last night, we're having like bedtime issues with our five-year-old right now. And so last night, I can't relax when he's not sleeping in bed. So I took time to like research about you and I was just like reading a bunch of stuff and I was like, oh my gosh. Like, first of all, you're 28. Is that accurate? 29. Yes. My brother's in August. You're 29. So 29 now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so you have a PhD in nursing and you were named one of the top 25 women of influence for your work in women's and maternal health and specifically in postpartum sexual health. So my first question, like, that's incredible. So impressive, especially at 29. 
My first question that I was thinking is, how did you end up in the space of sexual health in postpartum? Because that's a very niche area. It is. And it really came from, I think, a combination of interests for me. I volunteered for Options for Sexual Health BC during my undergrad. And that was kind of my first exposure into sexual health healthcare and clinical resources for that. And coming into my master's, I remember when I started at Dal, I knew I had an interest in global health and maternal health. I found a supervisory match in Dr. Megan Aston, who held both of those interests as well, which was fantastic. And as I looked into what the gaps were and what I wanted to do for what was my master's at the time, and then bridging into my PhD, I was looking again at a few maternal health topics and thought, you know, I wonder if there's anything on sexual health after birth. And look, kind of took a, you know, a look in the literature, and lo and behold, there were many gaps. And thought, okay, this seems like you know such a combination of my interests, and then also, of course, you know, sort of filling filling the gap in in uh, you know some small way through uh, through my research. So it it happened kind of like that, and has of course turned into you know kind of area of passion for me. So you have not had kids? No, no. See, that's what's always interesting to me. Every time I have an expert or a professional on and they do something in the realm of like motherhood or parenting, I'm always fascinated to know whether they became interested in that topic before they had kids or was it after they had kids? Because like I've had on pediatricians, I just had on a pediatric dentist. And so I'm always curious. So you have not had kids yet and you're still passionate about the topic. Like we love you. Like that's, (laughs) I love that. (laughs) No, it is. It's uh, great. You know, I think kind of knowing experiences, also kind of being a woman, we can all relate of how sometimes there isn't a lot known about women's healthcare. Things are under-researched in a lot of areas or not quite approached in ways that are helpful. So again, you know, knowing that sexual health was a taboo topic, kind of coming in with that lens, I said, you know, it's for me, it was something that I really, I think, enjoy and have enjoyed since kind of delving into this topic because it is, I think for me, it's important to talk about these things and also kind of share that experience to help, you know, one another. So it's nice, of course, to have platforms like this. I just saw a TikTok yesterday from a physician that was saying, with regard to clinical trials in health research, it was only in 1993 that it was required to have female participants in healthcare research, which is, you know, adds to the lack of research in women's health. But I like found that shocking. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's true. It's again, something we're talking more about in health research more generally, no matter the topic, whether or not it's women, you know, particular to gynecology or maternal health or things like that. It's been an issue in all areas of health research in terms of understanding, you know, some of those differences. Yeah. So again, always important and always more work that's needed. So So your research focused on sexual health after birth. And I always like to, like when I have gynecologists on or people that specialize in these niche areas when it comes to women's health or postpartum care, I like to kind of look at what happens right now with regard to postpartum care. So let's say, what do we do for postpartum women when it comes to sexual health right now? Like, is there even anything when it comes to our standard of care in Canada? Is there anything that's done at all with regard to sexual health and postpartum? There isn't a lot done in care right now. One area that, you know, if and when sexual health after birth tends to come up as a topic, it tends to come up at sort of that six-week postpartum check that people often have with their family physicians or their nurse practitioners, their midwives. And, you know, when it does come up, it's often focused on contraception, which is important, but is very also kind of, I think, very narrow and not always capturing what people actually want to talk about being, yes, okay, the physical, the safety piece of kind of getting that green light of, okay, is it safe for me to be having, you know, having sex again, but also kind of those emotional, relational, social pieces there, yeah, are often a lot of questions and it's not discussed really at those visits, typically. So that is kind of one way right now that, again, we see the topic come up a little bit, but it's never, yeah, never really been something that's been a standard of care in any way. 
And again, is often focused on kind of the, you know, talk of, okay, so we're ready to go on birth control again. And that's kind of where it ends. So that's where my work comes in. Now I like to ask this question, which is like a very like, like, let's play imagination. So if we could have, you know, a perfect, someone was like, I'm going to give you all the resources in the world. Like we are going to totally restructure how we handle sexual health in postpartum. Like what are some key things that you think should be done for sexual health during that time? I think with this, starting conversations early is something that I think could be really effective for people in terms of just knowing what to expect. I think when I talk to my participants in this research, a lot of it, you know, I ask them if you could give yourself advice, you know, a few months ago or just someone else in the postpartum period, you know, what would you tell them? And a lot of them said, you know, I just wish I knew. I would just wish I knew more about what to expect or what's normal or not normal, and how there are many variances of normal also. So with that, I kind of brought up the idea of, again, having this information early. As the saying goes, knowledge is power. And so even prenatally having these conversations or during pregnancy of kind of knowing what to expect, having resources available that go beyond kind of that biomedical model. And what I mean by that is, you know, having things like pelvic floor physiotherapy, the people in my research who did access that, had such positive experiences with it. And it's something that is right now in Canada not very accessible because if someone doesn't have private insurance, they have to pay out of pocket. It can be quite costly. So it's not publicly funded at this time, but there are other countries like France where it is. So that also is a huge resource of just kind of having that individual and tailored you know, knowledge of kind of what's going on with your body, having a partner in care. And then, of course, postpartum, you know, knowing that I think, there, as I said, there's so much variance in normal. I think there's always, with a lot of things postpartum, of just like, okay, is this okay? Is this normal? What's going on? There's also this overload of information. So it's all, it can be very overwhelming. And with that, you know, those conversations, I think, can happen more often and earlier on is, is sort of the message. So, Like after going through the experience of being pregnant, giving birth, being in postpartum, I looked back on it and I was like, wow, I spent so much time and energy looking into and learning about labor and delivery. I realize now that it was because I was scared of that part of it. You know, like we're seeing these images on social media or like in movies, it's always depicted as this scary, could be traumatic thing. Like it's very like, you know, the woman's like screaming, it's like chaos. So I put all my time and energy into educating myself about that, taking a labor and delivery course. And then looking back, I was like, oh my gosh, like what I should have been preparing for was postpartum. Like labor and delivery was like a blip in time. It was like, it started, it ended so quickly. It wasn't really in my control because you're kind of, you know, dealt the cards that you're dealt during labor and delivery and like you want everything to go as best as possible. And it was helpful to know my options and know that like I could have my husband there, my sister and like things that I could choose and what questions they were going to ask me. And that was helpful. But I was like, oh my God, I should have put so much more into preparing for postpartum. And when you talk to people in postpartum, do other people kind of have that same thought? Like, why did I spend so much time and energy on labor and delivery? I think it can. They absolutely can. And I think it's different for everyone too, because, you know, when I talk to new moms at, you know, public health centers or family resource centers, it's uh, often, you know, I'm there to talk about postpartum sexual health. So of course, when I'm there, then it's sort of this open space that welcomes those questions and we can talk about that topic in particular. But it is, I think, even in my research, the difference between first-time moms and second-time moms in terms of how they experience their sexual health, knowing what they needed, knowing what to ask for, all those things. Because again, you go in with almost no information and then, you know, if and when you're looking that up, it's like the Google rabbit hole. (laughs) That can be scary in itself. Yeah, but no, I think definitely there can be those themes for a lot of parents, for sure. Because it is, you're kind of thinking of all these moments and these milestones of that journey through pregnancy and birth and postpartum. 
And it's kind of goes back to the question of as well of kind of that postpartum period, you know, health wise, we have certain definitions of that of, you know, six months or one year after birth. But to me, really postpartum in a way never ends your post, you know, you can say postpartum for the rest of your life in a way, you know, I think also kind of the length of those issues and that navigation there and there's never really this sort of finite end. It is very much kind of this evolution. So no, absolutely. I think there can be variants there. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode of The Mom Room and providing me with samples. You know how a lot of people can't leave the house without a water bottle? It's like their emotional support water bottle. I am the exact same way with facial tissues. And that is because I have such bad allergies, specifically in my sinuses, to the point where I know I'm going to have to blow my nose multiple times in a day, and I cannot be out in public without my emotional support facial tissues. Luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. Now I know if I have a big event, maybe I'm going to a concert, going out for dinner, I don't want to be blowing my nose every two seconds. It's very unbecoming. And so I will take Claritin D and enjoy my evening. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter or ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. This episode is brought to you by Little Spoon. If you're like me, then the bane of your existence is thinking about what to feed your children, prepping food, going to the grocery store, all of the above. Who has the time? We are all so busy, and it's important to incorporate things into our life that keep our life as simple and convenient as possible. Little Spoon is one way to do just that. They deliver fresh, healthy meals and snacks straight to your door that your kid will love at every eating stage they are in. The baby blends are fresh, organic baby food from single ingredients to multi-textured purees to take the stress out of starting solids. They partner with Clean Label Project to test their blends for 400 plus contaminants, including heavy metals, so you know you're getting good stuff. The Biteables are finger food meals that are cut to size to promote easy self-feeding, and they are healthy, balanced, and free of artificial junk. The Little Spoon plates are toddler and big kid meals that are free of junk and they taste amazing. Even the pickiest eaters will love them. Think hidden veggie mac and cheese, chicken nuggets, and adventurous eats like pot stickers, gnocchi, and more. They also offer really fun things like puffs, they have smoothies, lunchers, and snacks. You quite literally never have to think about food again. It's just easy peasy. And did I mention this all comes right to your door? It is so flexible, so easy, and everything stores right in the fridge and freezer. The price is right. The quality is unmatched. You are going to love it and your kids are going to love it. It is just a huge win for your family. Simplify your kids' mealtime with 30% off your first order. Go to littlespoon.com slash momroom and enter our code momroom at checkout to get 30% off your first Little Spoon order. I feel like it would be lovely if in early postpartum there were appointments set up that were just for the mom. Like, of course, the baby... Like, even in my experience, I was really lucky because my family physician had young kids. And so she had just gone through that herself. So that was really nice. She knew like what kinds of things to ask me and she did focus on me a lot. I don't know if that's common for everyone, but there was never an appointment where it was like, how are you doing? You know what I mean? And yeah, there was this six week checkup, but like that's six weeks after like six weeks just seems so far after labor and delivery to be like, oh, how's it going? You know? Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. So you were on the social this year, which is super cool. And if you're in the US and you don't know what the social is, I don't know if it plays in the US. It's a Canadian talk show. And some of the myths that you guys talked about, I wanted to bring up because I found them to be interesting. So the first one was 
your vagina won't be the same after giving birth. And it's funny because the audience had lots of, like, it was conflicting. Some people were like, true, some were false. So can you tell us a little bit about that and why that is a myth? Absolutely. And I think a lot of it comes with sort of mixed expectations of, of course, seeing birth as this, you know, what can be a traumatic event to the body, which is absolutely true. But also, I think with sort of the research and how it's sort of framed in terms of, you know, people, people's body image, I think also there is this sort of social norm that views the postpartum body or women's postpartum bodies as sort of damaged after birth in a way that has sort of a negative connotation. And so, you know, for that, I think it's really a big piece in terms of body image and how women view themselves kind of sexually after birth and also kind of view the function of their vagina or their vulva after birth. I had a few participants who said, you know, it took me a while to kind of see that as a sexual organ again, rather than as something that was sort of for birth and for that purpose. Uh, So kind of that meaning coming into it was what came out in my research. But You know, with the vagina itself, you know, we know that, of course, there can be pelvic floor injury. There often is pelvic floor injury from carrying a pregnancy and or giving birth. And that length of recovery can certainly vary for people. You know, some people have, you know, third or fourth degree perineal tearing from delivery, which, of course, can be something that, again, takes takes time for recovery. And also, you know, kind of, again, changes. So it's, you know, looking at the vagina itself, that, of course, is sort of the birth canal, that's what adjusts during, during, you know, during birth to allow the, the baby to pass through. But again, you know, a lot of people do continue to experience issues with, you know, things like incontinence. The field of, field of urogynecology, you know, in a way would not exist without, uh, without childbirth. So there are absolutely changes. And so it's something that I always want to have a balanced conversation about because people also in terms of, you know, their vulva and the exterior kind of thing can be different. But it's also something that, as I said, it's not this sort of permanent damage to the body or thing that something that is, you know, sort of seen as, uh, you know, a flaw or this negative change. So yeah, it really varies for, you know, every person. So there's no kind of one size fits all answer. But it is, I think there is kind of that that myth that women are, so to, you know, so to speak, loose after birth. I hate hearing that word. But it's something that comes up, right? It's something that's sort of in this like social discourse that we have, this, these social norms that we have. So with that, you know, it's, it's a myth in the sense that, again, everything does go back after birth. In fact, a lot of women after birth also can experience, with the pelvic floor injuries, muscle tension, because those are, you know, skeletal muscles, right? Same as your bicep or your tricep, the pelvic floor is made up of skeletal muscles, And so with that tension, you know, in my research, some people were talking about how they really had, you know, difficulty even inserting a tampon after birth uh, for some length of time. And so it's almost the opposite, where actually people can experience, you know, tension in the pelvic floor area, and that can, you know, impede or impact uh, sexual activities as well. So lots, of course, lots of changes, but that's, uh, that's sort of what people can expect after birth. I feel like with the tension in the pelvic floor, lots of people assume that, like you were saying, the muscles are weak or it's loose, and that's why they're experiencing issues. When in like reality, if you go to a pelvic floor physio, chances are it's that they're tight. And it's, you know, you actually have to work on learning to loosen those muscles and not clenching all the time. Like I remember, oh my gosh, when Milo was like 18 months old, I went to see a pelvic floor physio, but I was lucky in that I saw one when I was pregnant as well. My friend happened to be, she worked at a clinic. She's a chiropractor and her colleague in her clinic was a pelvic floor physio. And I was like, oh, hey, like I'll go (laughs) see her. Like I, I learned about what they do. And I was like, wow, that is incredible. So I went and I learned so much about like doing Kegels properly and quickly realized that my muscles down there were super strong, but I needed to learn how to like release the tension almost. And so oftentimes, is it true to say that painful sex in postpartum could be related to like the muscles have just gone through almost like a trauma. So they're tense and that's what's causing the pain. Absolutely. It can be an issue for sure. And yeah, so public floor physiotherapists are great resources. They're the experts in that, which is fantastic. 
But yeah, same as if you kind of pull a muscle or things like that. Oftentimes you have the tension afterwards to sort of make up for that injury that's happened. So it can be the same after birth. The pelvic floor injury, again, varies for every person, but usually there is some sort of impact that, again, takes time for recovery. And also with pain during sex, you know, if people are breastfeeding, vaginal dryness can be a huge issue that people don't always know to expect. So that's another thing that kind of comes up quite a bit, I find, in terms of, yeah, painful, painful sex after birth. Oh, I didn't know that was a thing. Breastfeeding, like, causes or it's common to be dry if you're breastfeeding? Yes. Yeah. So it's the effect of a few hormones. There's, you know, when you're breastfeeding, you have prolactin, oxytocin, progesterone, which is the main culprit in terms of that. So yes, people often struggle with vaginal dryness during that period if they are breastfeeding. So I always have that conversation about tools that we have, lubricants, vaginal moisturizers, all those things, again, to sort of help with that because it is quite common. I did not know that. See, we learn something new every day. Okay, the second myth was that at six weeks postpartum, we should be ready for sex. And so let's talk about that six-week checkup, why we do it, what it means. Because I think there's lots of... I remember making a TikTok a long time ago (laughs) about about the six-week check, and it was something along the lines of like, your doctor at the six-week check is like, oh, okay, like, you're ready to have sex again. But then I was like, excuse me, like, I will tell you when I'm ready to have sex again. Thank you. <laughs> so yeah, let's talk about that six-week check because I think there's still a lot of, you know, misinformation or people assume things about that checkup and what it actually means. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the participants in my study, I think, echo a lot of what you just said of, You know, I think there was that piece of valuing what the healthcare provider said in terms of sort of that lens of safety of, okay, is it physically okay? Am I recovered? Is it, you know, safe for me to be, you know, having sex sex again? But also that internal voice of, okay, I'm being told that I'm ready. Physically, I'm recovered. But those things like, you know, subjective experiences like pain, like sexual desire, all those things, you're the only one who could be the judge, Right. So it's tough, I think, to navigate that when you sort of have these external messages of, okay, I'm safe, I have that, you know, that green light or that green check mark, but I'm not feeling ready. And so that's really where that theme came in my research of trust your gut. Because it was, it was kind of that internal knowing that people had to rely on and trust. And kind of, you know, it was difficult. I think the six-week check means a lot of things to different people. And that meaning in terms of what my research showed, was that the six-week check can feel for some like a bit of a return to normalcy of, okay, we made it this far, a bit of a milestone in a way. So it can have that positive connotation, but it also can be more negative in the sense that it feels like a bit of a deadline, in the sense that it feels very rushed, it feels like it's very arbitrary, it feels like it's too soon. So again, there's sort of that variance in terms of when people are going to feel ready for sex after birth. There was no right or wrong time. But the six-week check really is kind of socially positioned or seen in a way that, yeah, it should be kind of be, again, that check of when you're feeling ready, but it is not a one-size-fits-all. And that's kind of what my you know research showed and what I kind of aim to, in terms of myths, what I aim to dispel. Because I think a lot of times, you know, sex, if and when it comes up at that six-week check, it's sort of more with the aim of convenience and also with the physical pieces. So You know, at that six-week check, oftentimes we're looking to make sure if there's any, you know, perennial tearing that's happened or episiotomies to see that that has healed. By that time, the uterus has gone back down to pre-pregnancy size. So there are kind of some of those, again, physical things that we're looking for to ensure that, you know, everything is going okay after birth. But really in terms of sex, there's so much that goes into it that is not just the physical piece. So I think people, you know, when I talk to family physicians or gynecologists, uh, nurse practitioners, Uh, When I lecture or do presentations, it's often something that I talk about because, again, there's that expectation of kind of getting that approval from the healthcare provider, but then how we navigate that after is sort of something that we don't talk about. And even having that conversation with our partners at the six-week check, you know, I had a few participants who said kind of that they went into that visit with a little bit of a sense of dread of, you know, please, can I have more time? Please, can I have a couple more months? Like, I'm not ready And then what am I going to say to my partner also after? It sort of brings up this, I think, difficult, difficult piece of, well, the doctor says I'm okay or the midwife says I'm okay, but I'm not really feeling this way. And I think 
you know, what can be difficult about that especially is sort of sometimes almost that feeling of needing to explain yourself, if that makes sense. And that's tough. So yeah, no, the six feet check is, yeah, really, it is. It's a big moment. When I talked to, when I talked to people in my research, it was something that really surprised me in terms of not the fact that it was a moment, but how impactful of a moment it was. Because it came up when I asked people, what was a moment after birth, whether you were in the shower, you were in the grocery store, what was a moment when you thought about your sexual health after birth? And every single one said, you know what? The six-week check. So that was impactful because it really was such a moment for people. My understanding about the six-week checkup was that it has something to do with the amount of time that it takes for tissues to heal properly. Yes, generally, generally. So yeah, again, things like the like perineal tearing, if people have experienced that, we'll assess that. And the uterus going back down to size. So yes, all those pieces are sort of there. Along those lines, it was basically saying that your risk of infection moving forward is extremely low or like non-existent after the six-week check if everything was looking okay. Yes, yes. Did you see anything or do any research or read about, because I was hearing a lot during COVID that a lot of women didn't even do an actual physical check. It was like a FaceTime appointment or like a Zoom call at a six-week check, or they didn't have one at all. Was that like, did that come up at all? It didn't generally for my participants, simply because I think each of them did have a six-week check. But we know that it is an issue because, of course, you know, as is common, we hear in the news, you know, the lack of primary care providers for a lot of folks. So they're often connected with, you know, gynecology teams or midwifery teams, which is, you know, of course, very important. But often, sort of after that six-week mark, are discharged from care. So it sort of leaves some of those issues that people might be experiencing beyond the six-week mark, which can be many, <laughs> without sort of an attached primary care provider or attached care provider who's seeing them. So you know, it is definitely an issue in terms of the support that's provided for people postpartum. But in terms of the six-week mark, again, everyone in my research was able to have that visit. But even kind of, I remember one going back at six months, and because she was experiencing issues with sexual activity and still having pain during that time, and went to her family physician and said, you know, I'm still having issues, so was sort of seeking help or seeking treatment, and was told to use Crisco and come back at a year's at the one-year mark if she was still having issues. So it's also kind of an important conversation because people can be brushed off with this. This is, my research was done in 2020 <laughs> and this is still an issue, right? So being taken seriously, we know in women's health and gynecology more generally is an issue and that women are not believed when they come presenting with health issues. Their concerns are dismissed or, you know, kind of minimized and it's no different in the postpartum period. So luckily the participants in my research again spoke positively, mostly, about their healthcare providers, about their partners, but it is, it can be an issue as well in terms of teaching healthcare providers how to have these conversations. You know, from my lens as a nurse practitioner, as a PhD prepared nurse practitioner, I have these conversations with, you know, physicians, with nurses, with a variety of health professions, because it's important to kind of understand that they understand how to approach these conversations as well, because sometimes that's also the, the gap, is that, you know, they haven't been provided the education to meaningfully care for sexual health after birth. And so again, having that education piece also, I think, can help things be, you know, opened up on both sides. Do you think there's also a piece of the women seeking treatment, knowing how to advocate for themselves? Like, I always feel like in a healthcare provider situation, especially when you're feeling already so vulnerable in postpartum and experiencing all these different things, there's almost like a... Like there is a power imbalance when you go into a healthcare provider's office, like on a normal day, but now add in all the things that you're experiencing in postpartum and now trying to seek help for something that's maybe like a taboo subject or something that's not talked about, something that none of your friends like told you about. So you think you're the only one. It's like, there's so many layers of making it difficult to bring these things up to seek help. And then if you're not getting the answer that you want from your provider to advocate for yourself or go get a second opinion, 
Yeah, definitely. No, it is. It's a big issue because I think already kind of going into those, you know, conversations, it's postpartum, there's always a lot going on. And that six week check also can also feel quite rushed because there's so much to check. We're talking about physical health and mental health and all the stuff to cram in. And then, okay, do you need birth control? Kate, let me write a prescription. And that's kind of it. You know what I mean? And so before it's, you know, it feels like it just started. And then before I know it, it's over. But you're still kind of left with, okay, I actually have quite a few questions for you and that sort of feeling as well. So the system in itself is not exactly structured to help clinicians provide, I think, the care that they want sometimes and help patients get the care that they need. So you bring up a very good point in the sense that, you know, I think there's there's an issue on on both ends of how do we, be, again, engage in in that impactful care in, in ways that, again, can can be meaningful to people. Yeah, but no, I think coming in as the patient, there is, you know, unfortunately, sort of that inherent hierarchy or structure that we sort of expect. So with that, you know, I think there is literature to say that supports that people do often expect their healthcare providers to be the one to bring the topic of sexual health up with them and be the initiator of that conversation. However, it's known also that healthcare providers often don't know if or how to bring it up and then how to have that conversation. So it is. It's difficult because also if and when you do bring it up, I think it does. It takes courage, I guess, in a way. But it's also difficult when that is brushed off, if that does happen. Because again, you feel so vulnerable and you're asking for this help. And even that can can take a lot and be difficult to do. So if and when people bring it up, again, being listened to, I think is, you know, I've seen and worked with wonderful healthcare providers who are so great at this. But that's not necessarily something that can be accessible to everyone. And, you know, we have we have issues with that as well in the primary care setting. So, yeah, no, it is. There are definitely multiple barriers there for sure. So I think starting with health care providers being the one to bring it up and really ask about it. And so when I, you know, give practical tools to, you know, family physicians or whoever, whoever it is I'm presenting to, I always give them just those simple one liners of, you know, asking patients, so how are you feeling about your sexual health right now? What's going on for you? What are your thoughts on on your sexual health right now? And that way, it sort of opens it up to have people bring forward what they want to bring forward. So whether that's the physical pieces, contraception, or the emotional pieces, the relational pieces, it lets them be the ones to define sexual health for themselves. And that was also the approach I took in my research, because we know that sexual health, as I've said, and as is defined by the World Health Organization, it's physical, it's emotional, it's relational, all those components go into it. And so when I asked, you know, participants about how they experienced their sexual health after birth, it was up to them to define what was included in that. It didn't necessarily need to be about sexual activity. It could be, but it didn't have to be. And same with patients. So I always kind of tell providers or help guide them in that way in terms of having, you know, those, those practical ways of, okay, how do I bring this up? leaving it open to be what the patient wants to bring forward. And that also helps to offset those dynamics of, you know, power or whatever it is in the interaction, because it's letting them bring forward what is important to them, rather than having us be the ones to decide what's important to discuss. The provider asking that question is also so powerful, because it's sending a message that not everyone is ready right now. And there's lots of things that go into it. Like, it almost lets the patient know that it's okay if everything is not totally fine and you're ready to resume, you know, being sexually active and whatever it is. It's like, otherwise, if nobody talks about it, we're just kind of like, oh, okay, like I should be fine and everybody else is fine, obviously. So even just asking that question just kind of like paints the picture that, you know, you don't have to be fine right now and ready to be sexually active. So I love that. Definitely. No, it's an important message. <laughs> the third myth, which I loved, was that sex can be better after having kids. And I feel like a lot of people were like, oh, what? <laughs> but that that was true. That one was true. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, there's that myth again that having babies and having a family is going to completely you know, ruin your sex life or whatever those sort of, again, thoughts people might have. And it is, you know, going into a period where you don't know what to expect, you hear all these different things, all these different experiences. So you're kind of landing with, okay, what is my experience going to be like? So I think that fear, you know, in a way, or that fear of the unknown is fair. But with, you know, I think sexual health after birth, that process of sort of pregnancy and giving birth and all those things, you know, in terms of not only your own journey, uh, as a woman, 
And if your partner's involved or, you know, if you have a partner also kind of that journey and, you know, with them, it is, it's powerful because I think also that awareness of your body, seeing kind of what your body can do. I think a lot of people in my research said, you know, even though I'm doing all the recovery work right now, it was pretty awesome what my body was able to do. And so there is, I think in a way also that, that sense of confidence that comes with, again, carrying a pregnancy, giving birth, you know, this amazing, amazing thing that, you know, our bodies are able to do as women. So, you know, and then that kind of relationship with your partner, again, evolves, it can feel like a bit of a roller coaster and a lot of adjustment, but also, you know, enhances that sense of, you know, bond, bonding and intimacy in terms of, again, just what, you know, what a journey it is, the ups and downs within that, and how you can sort of, again, go through that with with a partner, without a partner, whatever your journey is. But yeah, I think also kind of that awareness opens up and that those conversations open up about kind of the realities of life, of, you know, life postpartum. So people, I think, can sometimes be, I think, a bit more open to talking about, okay, this is what my needs are right now. And sometimes that's sort of the first time where it is, again, you're navigating something that's so new, but there is no recipe book for what it's going to be like for you. So that, again, that theme and that topic of trusting your gut and being aware of, you know, what you're feeling physically, emotionally, I think pregnancy and postpartum are definitely sometimes a bit of a teaching, uh, teaching journey in that way. Those, you know, life lessons that we have of getting to know ourselves better, getting to know our partners better. I think that plays into it in terms of, you know, the how people experience sexual health after birth. And yeah, how sex can be better after birth. There's no kind of Again, one size fits all, but I think also there's, you know, this myth that uh, persists that it's, yeah, going to ruin your sex life or, or whatever that is. So, you know, as I said in my interview on The Social and I say now, it's important, I think, to see sexual health and sexuality as an evolution throughout the lifespan rather than something that is positioned as either, you know, positive or negative. It's always evolving. My husband and I both turn the big four zero next year, and we have been thinking a lot about our long-term health. We want to get smarter about our health, make better choices, but also not feel overwhelmed trying to separate fact from fiction. There is so much information out there, and it can be hard to figure out what applies to you, what is right, and what is wrong. Well, let me introduce you to the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. Don't just take my word for it. Naomi's Apple Review says, Zoe Science and Nutrition is super easy to consume even if you don't understand the science. With loads of actionable tips, a great mix of guests, and interesting cutting-edge science. You can't go wrong with a weekly podcast where world-leading scientists explain how their own research could improve your health. If you're ready to join millions of others like Naomi transforming their health, then search for Zoe Science and Nutrition wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Lola V. Lola V is an award-winning hair care line by none other than Jennifer Aniston. They offer clean, plant-powered products for every hair type and texture. I just did my whole hair care routine with all the products the other night, and I am obsessed. Along with incredible shampoo and conditioner, they have an intensive repair treatment that you can use once a week. They also have a lightweight hair oil. There's a leave-in treatment, and there's also a glossing detangling which I need because lately I want to do my hair in like a slicked back look, but my hair's too frizzy. Get 15% off Lola V with the code MOMROOM at www.lolav.com slash MOMROOM and Lola V is L-O-L-A-V-I-E. My husband and I, when we were dating, it was a little bit different. We didn't have a child. We didn't live together. We didn't, you know, have all the logistics of like running a household. Like it's totally different. Like sex life is not consistent, but either is your relationship. Like I feel like we've always been like best friends. We work so well as a team, but like the newborn phase was different for us. Like our son is five now. Like that's different. When Milo is 15, our relationship is going to look different. Like, and I think there's so much pressure on couples to maintain the relationship and the sex life that they had before they had children. And 
It's like acknowledging the fact that those things are going to ebb and flow and look different. And that leads me to the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which was one of the key findings which I loved was redefining intimacy. And I just did a whole solo episode about like sex and intimacy post having children. And I talked about almost like that topic and how it feels to me, especially with social media, there's all this pressure of like having sex constantly, you know? And it's like, I started to question myself. I'm like, okay, do I actually, like, do I want to have sex? Or is it just people are telling me that I should want to have sex all the time? Because honestly, once Milo goes to bed, I'm tired and I want to go read my Kindle. I don't have a desire to, like, have sex. Oh, my God, my mom. <laughs> oh, my God, my mother. She's probably going to call back, too. I'm going to leave that in the episode, too, because she listens to the podcast and she'll oh. be like, oh, my God, I feel so bad. <laughs> I'm just going to text her and tell her that I'm recording. You know what she's doing? She's shopping for Christmas presents for Milo. Ah, okay. Very important. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, I started to ask myself, like, should I be wanting to have sex all the time? Or can I just be happy with, you know, not having sex as much and... I don't know, like feeling connected and close to your partner does not equal just wanting to have sex all the time. Like a relationship and having, you know, a romantic attachment and like a bond to your romantic partner does not equal just having sex all the time. And I, I even talk about how my husband and I, since having Milo, started to sleep in separate beds. And even like that is so common among couples, you wouldn't believe it. Every time I talk about it on social media, people in the comments are just like, oh my God, me too, me too, me too. Like, But nobody talks about it because we're worried that other people are going to judge us and think like, oh, we don't have sex ever or like, ooh, there's something wrong in their marriage. But sleeping in the same bed does also not equal a healthy, you know, bonded relationship. So can you speak a little bit to the idea of redefining intimacy, especially in postpartum. And you bring up, again, a great topic because it is it's something that was a, you know, a big theme in my research and that we hear conversations happening you know, more generally about it too. So as you said, definitely participants in the research. You know, I had a few who said, you know, I think one was at the two-month mark and she said, I'd be scared to tell people that we haven't had sex yet because they would think something's wrong with their relationship because society sort of expects that of relationships is that, again, you know, you're sexually active together, but also kind of there's this social discourse as well that positions sex as sort of the you know best or most valid way of showing intimacy or sharing intimacy with your partner. And so again, there's sort of, again, these, these norms, these expectations within relationships and that fear of being judged if and when that's not happening. And for people, I think it really is postpartum or any, any period in life, really, that they're navigating, you know, kind of what works best for them and their partner. That's not for anyone else to decide, you know, but it is, I think postpartum, it's an issue, not only in social conversations, but in sort of the, from the research lens as well, because when I was looking at sort of what had been done in this area prior to beginning my study, a lot of the studies that looked at sexual health after birth were looking at things like sexual initiation. So first, first sexual intercourse, when did that happen? At what, you know, point postpartum did that happen? And also frequency of sexual activity were some of the common measures that were used to sort of measure sexual health after birth. And for me, yes, okay, that can be part of the picture, but there's really so much else there that goes beyond how often you're having sex. To me, that is not how I define sexual health. Again, that's my personal opinion. Some people might disagree. But redefining intimacy was important for people in this study because it was a way for them to, again, meet their needs and be aware of their needs. Often they talked about, you know, cooking together, flirting, joking, um, having time alone, just the two of them was very nice to just sit on the couch and just talk or cuddle or kiss or whatever that was and just spend time alone together without, you know, kids or without baby. So yeah, people really, you know, I think it was important because they sort of enacted agency in that way of, of saying, hey, okay, this is sort of what our needs are right now. That may or may not include sex. And oftentimes in the you know, postpartum period, it didn't necessarily include sex. 
but it was about, you know, for them, the important pieces were maintaining that emotional closeness with their partners. When, you know, I asked people what was, what was important to them, that was the main thing. So they found ways to still maintain that intimacy, that sense of teamwork, that closeness in ways that doesn't necessarily need to include sex. And again, that's powerful because what society tells us about relationships is often kind of the opposite, where it is very much about sex or when did you guys first have sex or how often are we having sex? All those things, right? And sex can be great. That's great. If that works for people and that is how you know they want to maintain that intimacy postpartum, again, nothing wrong with it. But I think it's important to also talk about the changes and how sexual health is not necessarily measured based on how often you're having sex. If you could say anything to the partners of women in early postpartum to like if we, if we were just going to like broadcast this to all the partners in the world whose, you know, partners have had babies and they're in early postpartum, what would be the message that you would say? I think there's a few pieces to it. So when I talk about this, it's, you know, the physical pieces and the emotional pieces. And in my research, the participants did often talk about having supportive partners, which is fantastic. And a lot of it kind of came down to feeling like they could speak openly with their partners and that they were listened to and that their needs were respected. So whatever they were kind of telling them or saying in terms of, you know, sex or return to sex, often it was sort of like, it's not you, honey. It's just I'm not ready. Things like that. But it was, you know, in terms of kind of, I think what partners can do is, of course, be that supportive person, be non-judgmental and welcome those conversations without, of course, feeling pressured. So luckily, none of the participants in my study felt pressured by their partners. But we know that that can be also kind of a common issue of, again, the expectation of, you know, the six-week check and, you know, there's a lot of excitement building and, okay, this means we can, you know, have sex again. And that's often kind of can be a bit scary for people who have, who have you know, given birth and things like that. So the sense of humor also was an important piece, I think, if and when returning to sexual activities. It, it can. It can be awkward. It can be different and messy and all these things. So being able to laugh with each other, I think people also found different. So that's, that's something I would say to partners is to be open to whatever that looks like. You know, with breast changes, people kind of can feel different about having that area touched. Oftentimes there's, you know, breast tenderness or breast soreness if they're breastfeeding. They can have leakage as well, especially when they're aroused or climaxing. There could be leakage. You know, some people talked about, you know, oh, I don't want my partner to view my breasts as being for breastfeeding, you know, while we're having sex, like it kind of, you know, it's different because people are often kind of navigating the fact that they see their bodies quite differently postpartum and those parts that they might've seen as having solely a sexual function prior to pregnancy, that sort of shifted after birth as well. So for partners, I think, yeah, just open, being very open to honest conversations, listening with empathy, not putting any pressure on anyone at any time. And taking things slow with the physical pieces, taking it slow, being open to the fact that things might feel new. You might have to figure out uh, what positions work or, you know, introduce methods that you didn't use before or all these things to kind of help both of you have, you know, a, a positive fulfilling sexual relationship. So, again, the changes are unique. Uh, it depends what you'll be navigating. Everyone's different. Every couple's different. But those are kind of, I think, some common issues that people have have after birth. Do you think it's worthwhile for someone's partner to before the six-week check, it's worthwhile for them to have a conversation about how they understand that the six-week check doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to start to initiate sex again or, you know, intercourse. Do you think that is a conversation that partners should be having just to kind of ease the anxiety about that six-week check? And opening the conversation to the fact that that doesn't mean just because I'm maybe not going to get an infection doesn't mean that I'm emotionally or physically still ready to have sex. Definitely. I think it's worth having that conversation at any time throughout pregnancy, postpartum. You're navigating what are, again, through pregnancy, lots of physical changes throughout that time, throughout those nine months. And then postpartum is the same thing. So with that, again, the, the pressure, I think, was sort of felt not necessarily, you know, spoken, but it was something that, you know, people getting that checkup, postpartum women, were a feeling of sort of like, oh, okay, I feel like this is kind of an un unspoken expectation here, and I'm not feeling ready. So they felt kind of the need to bring it up afterwards with their partners. But yeah, I think always approaching that, again, with empathy and just wanting to understand the other person's experience. So saying something like, hey, I know we have that six-week check coming up. 
I feel like oftentimes this is kind of seen as something that means that people are ready for sex. And that is, you know, something that I don't think really fits, necessarily fits with everybody. So I just want to check in. How are you feeling about your body, about your changes, about sex itself? I want to understand your experience and know that there is no pressure with anything. We can take it at our pace and, you know, preface with that of, again, just wanting to understand each other's experience. I think that really shows love and affection in such a deep way where we open that up to say, hey, I understand that maybe this is something you might have on your mind. Let's talk about it. So again, never, never too early to have those conversations. And I think partners are, again, supportive in so, so many ways during that period. And sexual health is no different. They have an important role to play in sort of navigating that and, and you know, being okay with, with the changes that may come. So, And I feel like keeping the conversation open and continuing the conversation kind of takes away the... I don't know, not like the shame, but almost like the feeling of like wondering what the other person is thinking, you know, like, so if if you're 11 weeks postpartum or something, and you're not initiating sex, you're like sitting over there thinking that your partner's like, oh my God, like what's going on? You know, so if you're keeping the conversation open, it's like nobody's guessing what the other yes, person exactly. is going through. Yeah. No, it helps that. a lot. And I think also, you know, brings up another point for, you know, postpartum women and their partners is also that sexual health after birth and sexual activity in particular is not sort of this like linear path to feeling ready of, okay, we're at this point, I'm ready. It's going to be that ebb and flow. It's going to be back and forth. So I think also that's an important piece where, okay, again, when it's what I find is problematic about measure, you know, measuring sexual health as kind of maybe the first time that people engage in sexual activity. When does that happen? Because it might go fine. It might not go so fine. It might be kind of like, okay, that didn't feel how I expected or that didn't go how I expected. So there is very much that ebb and flow also of, you know, it's not just, okay, we're starting to have sex again. We're sexually active again all those sorts of things. It's for people in my research as well was kind of this process of figuring out, okay, what's going to work for some that meant, you know, self-pleasure or masturbation prior to engaging in sexual activities with their partners, which I thought was great for some, again, it could be introducing new positions or new, you know, tools like, you know, vaginal, vaginal lubricant, things like that. So yeah, that's also the other piece as well is sort of to know that it'll be, it might be a bit of back and forth and in that sense. I feel like that's everything. Like not many things in life are linear. Let's just let's just say that. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so this was a fabulous conversation. I'm curious what your plans are for the future. Like, do you have research ideas in mind? Or, you know, are there particular things that you're looking forward to doing? I'm, you know, I think very fortunate in the sense that I get to have a research, you know, piece to the work I do. And also that clinical lens as well. I love the combination and feel so lucky to be able to, you know, engage in women's health research in that way. So with this work, you know, I've, um, I developed a patient education tool on sexual health after birth that's now used on all postpartum units across Nova Scotia and much of the Maritimes. Uh, it's also in family resource centers, family doctor's offices, places like that as a way to initiate that conversation. So now we have a tool to uh, to kind of start that off. So it helps healthcare providers and patients. So with research, I think there is more needed, of course, in this area. My interest focused, you know, largely on maternal women's health and gynecology more generally. So I think with this research, a continuation could absolutely be, I think, looking at sexual health past the six-week mark. My research, you know, I interviewed women who were between one and six months postpartum. And even at that six-month mark, you know, some people definitely were still active, actively navigating issues. And so I think looking at sexual health from even a more longitudinal perspective would be helpful in terms of contributing to the literature. And then, yeah, in terms of care, I think trying to help, you know, help these conversations happen, whether that's prenatally or postpartum. So educating healthcare providers, uh, lecturing, presenting, I do that quite a bit. Developing, again, the tools and example of ways to, you know, practical ways that I think will help open open things up in terms of conversations about sexual health after birth. So yeah, again, always looking for ways to improve. But my work, you know, largely right now is focused on how can we impact clinical care with this research. It's no good to, you know, just publish it in the journals. You know, that's great and fine too, but that's all academics who read that. Uh, it's, you know, not necessarily accessible and, and in that way. So for me, I really look at, you know, the knowledge translation piece 
as being important in terms of how do I affect frontline care? How do I, you know, shift care based on the work that's been done and the work that I hopefully will do in the future? So again, having that lens as a clinical provider, I think is helpful in that way. So yeah, we'll see where where things go. But being a BC Women's, I think will be a great base for me to hopefully impact care, not only in the province, but uh, across Canada as well through policy development and my role on, you know, certain boards or committees and things like that. So I love it. And you get to do it all in beautiful Vancouver. Yes. Yes. I'm very lucky. Are you on social media? Like, do you have an Instagram account or anything? No, <laughs> I'm a bit of a dinosaur oh. in that way. <laughs> I, you might be the first person on the podcast. Yeah, that's not I, I am, no, I'm not surprised. Yeah. But no, I am technically on Twitter, but don't check it a ton. But no, I don't have Instagram or TikTok or anything like that. I do have a ResearchGate profile. If people are interested in the publication piece. There is that for for looking at some of the publications, but uh, otherwise, no. I yeah, I call myself a dinosaur in that way. Oh my god, I love it! You're like a true academic. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we would expect nothing less. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I love it. Okay, well, thank you so much for you know coming into the mom room and talking about this extremely important topic that I don't think enough people talk about. So it was a pleasure to talk to you today. Yes, you as well. Thank you so much for having me on, Renee.